today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Because the story that came out today is that the University of Waterloo has had a secret formula that they've been working for a number of years, but they there's a reason they call it secret. They don't tell everybody this, but we got it now. It came out. And here's what it's for. When kids apply from high school to get into university, they send their transcript of their high school grades. Well, we all know that one high school doesn't necessarily equal another high school. One high school's teachers might mark more difficultly, difficult than another. A grade of 80 in one school might be worth 75 or 70 in a different school. So how do you figure out what these mean? Well, what Waterloo did in very, very short order is they took the grades that were submitted year after year by different schools, by the kids at different schools, and they compared them with the grades the kids from those schools, from every school, got in their first year at university. And then they were able to, and this is very loosely explained, but so let's say the average kid from school X came in applying with an 85%. And then in their first year of university, they got 75% on average. Well, there's a minus 10. So you have some idea of what we're talking about. This all goes to something called grade inflation, which a lot of experts who study uh, entertainment, education and schools say is a huge and growing problem. Schools all over the place are doing this. Now, there are schools that are on this list. The list is out. uh, We'll get to some of those schools from around here that found themselves on the list right near the top of the most grade inflated, seemingly according to Waterloo stats anyway, report. But I want to bring in Dr. Anton Alahar. He's a professor emeritus in the Department of Sociology at Western University. We had him on here before talking about university education and he was outstanding and he's one of the pe- one of the few people you can turn to who actually works in universities who will calls it as he sees it about universities. And so I wanted to get him back. Uh, Dr. Alahar, thanks for joining us again today. Thank you so very much, Scott. Are you at all surprised when you hear that students are coming out of high school with grades that seem to be not necessarily in line with what they should be? Um, You know, in in a sense, um, I am not surprised. And you said just now that I tell it like it is. The problem is, in many respects, we don't have students anymore. We have customers because our schools and universities have become places of business. And as you know, in a business enterprise, the customer is always right. The students come in funneled and fueled by their parents, and they think that they are making a purchase, they have paid their fees, and they want in return uh, the merchandise for which they paid. And in this case, it is a diploma, a degree, or a certificate. So there's a sense in which at the high school levels, uh, what you have going on, uh, it's more inflation of the grades with a view to A, minimizing the responsibility on the part of the high school teachers, and B, maximizing the chance that the parents will be happy when their children get into university. Then they get there, and you have professors who themselves are trying to avoid the complaints, the the negative evaluations, and so on. So they, too, continue the practice that was begun in the high school so that you have um, professors who are the inflators of the grades, much like high school teachers. But to your point, and there's a lot to get to in what you just said, but if you're correct, and, and I believe you are correct, if you're correct, it says something even more, though, about the inflation in high school. If you've got university professors who are willing to prop up the grades to make sure the kids don't fail out. And yet when we look at some of these schools and how much the marks are dropping from high school to university anyway, it must say something dramatic about some of the grades that are coming out of high school. Oh, certainly. Um, I have asked um, numerous students over the years, and they have always told me that they did not have to work in high school to get the grades that they came in with. But then they get to university, and it is a curious logic where you really have to make a very special effort to fail. Because, again, in a system that is more business-oriented, what would happen if we, deserve, if we failed all of our students who deserve to be failed? There will be a rebellion. <laughs> and there is a sense in which we, as professors, are complicit in this. 
we hold our noses, turn our eyes away, and we enter the grades. The students are decent, wonderful, lovely human beings, but they are not prepared to do the work, and we are not prepared to hold them. And I'm speaking in broad strokes of the brush. Of course. We are not prepared to hold them to that task because we don't want lines at our doors with people who are complaining and carping and kvetching and, and crying and phone calls from parents wanting to know why their child, is, who is a star at high school, is not a star at university. So we have entered an era also where the whole concern with emotion over evidence is very important, and this is very much part and parcel of the, the D- Donald Trump era. It is not what you know, it is how you feel. And there is so much that we, as helicopter parents, who handed the ball over to helicopter professors, have to, to take uh, the blame or the responsibility for. And, and Doctor, it seems that the, what you're talking about with that must also apply in a similar way to the high schools, because for the high schools, it doesn't serve them well to graduate a class of people who none of them get into good schools or very few of them do. It looks good on the high schools to be pumping out students who are going to Queens or Western or McGill or McMaster or whatever else. And the way you do that sometimes is you make sure they have marks that are going to get them in. Well, certainly. I mean, this idea of pumping them out is um, what we used to call long ago passing the buck. And when people at one level are not prepared to assume the responsibility of failing students, when students deserve to be failed and they worked for their failure, then what we have is that kind of what I call complicity. I think that the problem, however, is not to be aimed entirely or solely at the student. The problem is culture-wide. It is part of, there's a book recently released titled Coddling of the American Mind, because the problem is present in the U.S., in Canada, in the Caribbean, in South America, and I even have colleagues in Israel who write and tell me about this. I have taught in Russia, where I find it also. Uh, We're dealing here with a, a bigger concept of education inflation, which comprises uh, credential inflation and grade inflation. The credential inflation speaks to the mad scramble for more certificates and diplomas and degrees and bits of paper, regardless of whether or not those bits of paper certify that we know anything. The grade inflation is, as you and I have been discussing, but part of the culture-wide problem is that, you know, someone once referred to the, the White House in the U.S. as an adult daycare. In many respects, our universities have become adult daycare centers. They are centers of therapy, therapeutic training, The dean of my faculty um, has a session once a week, I think, where faculty members can get together in the faculty lounge and get rid of stress, and they can stretch and do yoga. A colleague in the U.S. sent me something where they have um, petting dogs that come in so that professors can release stress. I got an email the other day telling me that there's a remedial writing lab for professors who don't know how to write publishable papers. And, of course, there are those in the United States and California who told me that you have coloring sessions, once more, not for the students, but for the faculty members. So what we are dealing with here is a very um, fragile kind of situation where the university is there and it produces uh, graduates in, uh, in name only. And this is why, compared internationally to other universities, our students appear to be faring not too well. And at the same time, at our universities, perhaps at our high schools, the foreign students are the ones who are outperforming Mm. our local ones, hands down. So here's where the challenge comes in, though, because if uh, we now have EQAO tests coming out of high school, so you've got uh, kids who are in high school, and not just EQAO, grades in general, and again, what we talked about, putting kids into university. So there is no way, doctor, that a high school an administration is going to be okay with suddenly saying, you know what, enough of the great inflation, we're going to crack down and it may cost our students an average of 15% or 20% across the board. That's never going to happen. Just as it's not going to happen, as you've described it in university for suddenly professors to really crack down and drop the, and cause a bunch of people to fail. So if we're not willing, it seems to do anything, how do we fix this problem? Well, I think in the, the article that I, I read from um, Waterloo University, they, the, suggest, the solution is really about standardized testing. Uh, 
Um, I think that whether one comes from McMaster or Western or York or, or wherever, Carlton, if this fi- the graduating students, whether in university or in high school, are all going to be applying to the same sorts of programs, they ought to have been exposed to the same kinds of readings, the same kinds of tests, and the same levels of grading. The difficulty is that in some disciplines, that is easier than others. With the exact sciences, so-called, 2 plus 2 equals 4. And whether you get a 4 or 3 in Carlton or Queens or McMaster, it is going to be the same thing. However, when we're dealing with the more qualitative uh, disciplines, and you ask somebody who is absolutely brilliant in mathematics and, uh, and chemistry, what is social justice? What is freedom? What is love? What is democracy? They will be stumped so that it is more difficult to really quantify how much a student in those non-exact sciences knows and what does one do with it. And it's difficult to come up with uh, multiple choice tests on a Shakespeare play. But this is where we are headed because as the universities become more concerned with processing as opposed to educating students, the huge classes in the humanities and social sciences are the ones that are now going in the direction of multiple choice testing which I think is, you know, really very, um, very much out of place. Some of these students need to be tested in terms of the qualitative understanding, the ability to write, to interpret, to analyze, and so on, different challenges and experiences. Um, but as we become more and more subject to the almighty dollar, where we want more scholar for our dollar, um, we're going to find this perversion of the, the traditional university, and uh, the high schools supply us, with our customers, so they too will be part of it. Dr. Anton Alahar, Professor Emeritus from the Department of Sociology at Western University, always a pleasure having you on. Thanks for your insights tonight. Marvelous. Thanks for calling me, Scott. Uh, as just a quick update, there are four Hamilton area schools that made Waterloo's list, at least part of their list, the top of their list. This is now, understand, this is not my list, this is Waterloo's list that was put out. Number one was Southern Ontario College in Hamilton. It was third in Ontario for greatest disparity between high school and university marks. Students there saw a 25.7% drop from secondary to post-secondary. On the list also, Ancaster High School, 18th on the list, 21.2% difference. Bishop Tonus was right right after Ancaster at 19th, and it was at 21.1%. And Burlington's Robert Bateman was 21st on the list at 20.7% difference between high school and university marks. Not the only schools. Lots of schools on there. 73, I think, schools were on Waterloo's list. Those are the local ones, at least near the top, in the top 25. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. The car that we all know, the iconic Beetle, the Bug, after 2019 is going to cease to be, I mean, they're not going to round them all up and crush them, all the old ones, but they're not making any more after 2019. According to the company, this is going to be done so efforts can be put into becoming a more family-focused brand, which I'm guessing means bigger cars, SUVs, minivans, that kind of thing, stuff that is maybe a little more practical than a Beetle. But I can't imagine it will be more, as I used the word before, iconic, And this really does seem to mark the end of, well, I don't know if it marks the end of an era. I think that era is gone, but certainly the Beetle represents something. It represents something. Justin Sukraj is the owner of Wells Auto in Milton. More importantly, he organized the first Oblivion Car Show last month to honor those cars that have been banished to the mists of time. Justin joins us now. Justin, thanks for doing this today. Oh, you're very welcome. Uh, Is there a more iconic vehicle than the Beetle? You know, I, I think next to maybe the Mini Cooper, mm. the, the, the Beetle is one of the most recognized shapes as far as car goes. Yeah, because if you think of the 50s, um, there's a few, and the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, the, two, the 1000s, there are several cars that probably come to mind, but as far as the 60s and maybe even into the early 70s, that is, the the Beetle and probably the Beetle, the, the, the Volkswagen van would be the two that would really stand out as the iconic images of a vehicle of that time. Yeah, I agree. And so why is that? What, what makes a vehicle iconic? What makes it representative of its time? Well, I think it had to be something that was innovative and popular. 
And those are the two major criteria uh, next to being fun and, and, and unusual. Those are what stands out, I think, in people's minds of the nostalgic cars of yesteryear to the nostalgic cars of today. It's, it's that sort of thing that stands out a little bit, even though it blended in daily. It's how it stands out later on that, that seemed to have a lasting impact. I think based on your criteria there, there's no question that a Beetle was popular. Was it innovative? Oh, I believe it was. In uh, what way? Well, if you look back to the original Beetle and, you know, its development during World War II and prior stuff, um, that's that the car itself being the people's car, uh, I think there was a lot of innovation of having the engine in the back, that layout, that, that the, the chassis itself. It was it was different than cars of the time. So I think the, the very first ones were part of that revolution of a, a different type of car. And yet there were still lots of cars, lots of different cars available in the 60s, um, just like there are now, just like there were in the 50s before. I mean, they, w- any idea, any theory on why the Beetle stood I mean innovative yeah okay and popular yes but why did it seem to rise head and shoulders above and become so synonymous with that time I think there are two two reasons one was cost and the second reason was it being a different product that went against everything else that was mainstream and that's a popular thing that still happens today that the car you drive or the car you choose does say about a lot about your your opinions in many cases and and your beliefs and that car represent of course you know in the the uh, the hippie era that was the car that represents peace love and happiness automotively and well and that and you're right though that ties in the the hippies they didn't I don't think the hippie generation looked at the car and said oh that's the one that represents us that's the car no. that they bought which then made it synonymous with them yeah and I think they they what they did is they bought it because the other cars didn't re- resonate with them. Right, it represented a different time and a different era that didn't didn't speak to what was happening in their lives. Well, remind me because I can think to the 1950s, and I've got the image in my head of a typical 1950s car, and it was a gigantic sedan with fins on the back, kind of like the Batmobile is kind of the picture yeah. I have in my head. And yeah. then in the 70s, when we had the gas crisis in the states yeah. and stuff, we went down to smaller compact cars. What were the typical cars of the 60s that made the Beetle so different and so stand out so much? Well, they were still the front-engine, rear-wheel-drive, large, heavy-metal sedans. Um, I mean, if you take a look at what the big three was producing, this was also a foreign car. And at the time, I believe, you know, when Volkswagen was bringing these cars over, it was one of the first foreign audio manufacturers to uh, be in North America. So I think that had an allure to it as well. It was exotic. There might have been one-offs or you know, a few cars of the, the time, maybe some Italian stuff brought in and whatever, but nothing to this sort of full-scale, note. we're coming, we're selling cars, they're going to be in North America that Volkswagen had done. And they have to, I guess the other criteria would be that they have to actually be good cars, because I can yeah. remember back to... When did the Lada come over here? The 80s, maybe? As another example of a crazy car that sort of stood out, and yet nobody went, nobody looks back at the Lada and goes, oh, the days of the Lada. (laughs) No, you're totally right. And I think the Lada happened at the end of the 70s, if I'm not mistaken, um, and early 80s. I remember them from uh, being around into the mid-80s, actually. Um, And and that was a good example of a car that was made out of necessity, not out of love. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that, that is absolutely true. Now, the the fact that the Beetle has been made, it's been stopped, I guess, twice. This is now in its third incarnation. But d- does a Beetle today carry the same, I don't know, that same sense of love or same sense of whatever for people who would buy one of the newer models today? Does it still mean the same thing? No, I don't believe so. I think Volkswagen had nailed it in the 90s with the uh, second launch of the, the new Beetle when it came out. And that was, again, a complete nostalgic uh, marketing angle. It worked really well. You know, it brought back the, the flower in the little box. Yes, yes. And, and that sold, sold, sold. And it, it did. It was very popular. It was very cool. And here we are in what I like to refer to as the future. And uh, that nostalgic moment has passed as all nostalgic moments will pass. And I think the, the end of product was, was struggling to stay alive and to stay relevant. So does that mean then, sorry, but does that mean then that in 10 years, 15 years, Volkswagen is likely going to bring it back with a slightly new one and say, it'll be out for two years just to capture that nostalgia again? I don't believe so because I don't believe it's sold in the same, uh, quantities and with the same amount of emotion that the first generation of the Beetle did. 
right? It's almost the same, same with the Mini. If we brought a nostalgic Mini, if the Mini were to go away back in another 15 years, there might be a small market for it, but it'll be a small and short-lived market. Joining us is Justin Sukrosh, who is the owner of uh, Wells Auto. No, is it Wells Auto? Is that what? Yes, yeah, Wells Auto in Milton. Sorry, I couldn't even read my own writing in front of me. Wells Auto in Milton. But more importantly for our discussion, he's the organizer of the Oblivion Car Show that was uh, held last month. When you had this show, what are the cars right now? When you look back at old cars, especially those that have been banished to Oblivion, what are the cars that really turn people's cranks? You know, it's interesting. You think it would be the exotics. You yes. Think it would be the cars that were hanging on our walls when we were children and the cars that we aspired to. But you know what? It wasn't necessarily. It was the cars that we rode around in, the cars that were, were the cars that we bought as our first project, our first driver, the, our parents' vehicles. These oh, no. Really. Oh, oh yeah. no. <laughs> yes. oh, the, the Ford LTD. You didn't have a Ford LTD, I hope. You know what? We had the GM equivalent of a Ford LTD. The Mercury. Uh, uh, no, sorry. That, that was also a Ford uh, in disguise. But we had some of the big boat cars, too, yeah. And uh, that, that did strike a chord with some people. And you could see it in their eyes when, when something triggered that nostalgic smile that I was aiming for. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a thing of artistic beauty to be something that warms the cockles of the heart. And this is exactly where this new generation of collector and new generation of nostalgia comes from. Uh, you know, it was always argued that the, the era of cars, 80s and 90s, were not the best. They didn't have the most horsepower. They weren't doing, you know, the same amount of burnouts at the drag strip. And, and they were not built to the same standards in some cases. But you know what? None of that was relevant to a nostalgic market. So what, remind me again, I can't think of it. What's the name of the auction they do all the time down in... Uh Arizona or wherever it is. The, oh, Bear Jackson. Bear Jackson, yeah. So does that mean that we are going to, one of these days, see somebody rolling a K car across the stage at, the, at that auction with a $200,000 price tag? You or know, a gremlin? You that, but you, you will see a, a 1997 Integra Type R fetch $100,000 at Bear Jackson in my lifetime without question. Really? Without question. Are, I is, bank everything I have on it. <laughs> is there such a thing then? Okay, so you're talking about the cars that are the utilitarian, basically, the family cars that you're referring to that people were looking at fondly. Is there such a thing as a car that can be so bad almost as far as an artistic effort that it can be now be good? Well, I think there are some real oddballs, and we had some at Oblivion that came out. The Hyundai Pony, the Omni GLHS. Um, <laughs> the Omni. Yeah, yes. well, not just an Omni, a GLHS, which is the Shelby Daytona engine version of the Chrysler Omni. It was a it was a sports version. Same with when we look at the Integra Type R, which was you know the the top end Integra that was available. You could have a four door sedan Integra that won't be fetching the same money. But the very rare performance track version of this car that was released from the factory is the car that people sought after and wanted. And now it's one of the most in demand cars out there. Now that's a lot of other people. For you, yeah. What would be the car if a car if you could? Snap your fingers and have any car from any era show up in your driveway and be yours. What's the car? It might actually be that car or a 1991 NSX. That's the car I don't have in my current toy box. Um, I believe that my retirement fund would be based on a 1991 uh, Acura NSX right now. See, as a kid, uh, and it's timely because Burt Reynolds just died, and as a kid I always wanted the black Trans Am with the big gold eagle on the hood. Yeah, uh, that was the, that was the cool, <laughs> cool, cool car at the time. And I, apparently none, I mean, there's not very many of them around, certainly none from the movie that they say, and not very many anywhere. Yeah, you know, there's a good example. That's just sort of the tailed end of Oblivion because that was a 70s chassis car sold right, you know, up to the 80s. Um, and that car right now in the next five years will be a very good buy from the collector market because the demand for that car will be coming slightly down, whereas the demand for slightly newer cars will be coming up. And it means that there's be opportunities for people like yourself who's always wanted one of those things. Uh, now's the time uh, in the next five years to grab one. Uh, yeah, I'll have to speak to my wife about that one. <laughs> we may have a few other priorities on the list. Um, it, it, it's easy to think about this as a boomer hol- uh, hobby or something for people who are now in their 50s, 60s, 70s, on and on. Is this also a millennial hobby? Have they yet grabbed on? Has there been a car in their lifetime that they're far enough away from now that they've been able to grab onto this? Well, I think uh, being the in-between generation of those two things, it's, uh, it's actually our time. Um, so the, the, the millennials never really picked on the cars the same way. And, and even right now, the, the kids growing up today don't have the same connection to vehicles mm. that, that you know, people like myself in our mid-30s have. 
um, I think we were probably one of the last generations who had that real car connection uh, because right now kids growing up don't use cars for the same reasons. Uh, whereas the boomers had that, it was definitely a uh, you know part of the culture as well. I, I think that the, the new the next collector generation is the oblivion generation. And just be- okay, and just before I let you go, and the oblivion generation, it's a fascinating name for it. It really is. Uh, just before I let you go, what is it for those who did have that connection to cars? What is it about a car more than we don't think of it with a stove? We don't think of it with a, you know, a fridge or I mean a TV, anything. What is it about a car that makes people feel so deeply? You know, the car represents a number of senses, motion, the visual, the smells, and more importantly, it represents freedom, especially, you know, people like myself who grew up in, in the sm- suburbs of small town. That was how you got around it. It was, it was not only how you got around, it's how you identified so it meant a lot more than just uh, transportation. You left out making out in the back seat. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that's what I meant, right? <laughs> <laughs> Justin Sukaraj of Wells Auto in Milton, also the organizer of the Oblivion Car Show. Is there going to be another one of those, by the way? Yeah, we're working on Oblivion 2 right now. And, uh, you know, the same type of vehicles that we had there, the whole pile of DeLoreans, my, my clients from Wells Auto here, as well as all the other sort of new oddball cars that have come about that trigger that memory. They'll be there too. It'll be bigger than ever. Really appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this today. Thank you very much for having me. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. When I mentioned my dream car as a kid was the Smokey and the Bandit black Trans Am with the big gold eagle on the hood, the one Burt Reynolds was driving Sally Field around in, talking on his CB radio. Will, who's on the other side of the glass, who's running things today, playing the music, doing everything, Will suddenly jerked to life. Because oftentimes when I'm talking, Will just is having a nap or whatever he's doing behind the glass. But suddenly he perked up. And you told me something over the commercial that I thought was hilarious. Yep, coming into the city today, I am on the go bus, going to head, check out the start of Supercrawl, come to work here with you, Scott. I'm on the go bus, and I hear booming through the sealed windows. I hear someone blasting the tragically hip. And I think, who, what, what car is doing this? Where is this coming from? I turn, I look, and there it is, a black Trans Am with the gold eagle on the hood, Wide open, blasting music everywhere. Whoever that was, get in contact with Scott. Sell him your car. Exactly. Yeah. Very cheap. Very cheap, please. I can pay up to $50 before my allowance is done. Something like that. Uh, By the way, Will, you can hear in his voice, he never falls asleep in this show. (laughs) He never falls asleep, period. He sleeps 30 minutes a night, and the rest of the time he's drinking energy drinks and coffee and eating donuts. Let us go to something that we like to call, we do this once a week or maybe sometimes twice, but we like to call it Will's Story of the Day. Here's what I do. I pull together three of the more unusual, more strange, sometimes infuriating, usually just ridiculous stories from around the world. I give you a short recitation of them and then Will chooses which one is his story of the day. The criteria is entirely his. He can choose it for whatever reason he likes. Story number one comes to us from Portland, Oregon. You may have heard this story, some of you, because it's just one of those stories that it's just, it's too good. It it writes itself. It's about a woman named Nancy Crampton Brophy. Nancy Crampton Brophy wrote a book titled How to Murder Your Husband. Yes. This week, she was charged with murdering her (laughs) husband. (laughs) We should not laugh. (laughs) Well, we should not laugh. But what really comes to mind is, well, two things. First of all, the picture that the website that I found that is telling this story has a picture of her looking quite lovely, white-haired woman. She looks like, what was that white-haired cook, TV cook who got in trouble for racist stuff? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) She looks very much like her. White-haired, very happy, jovial-looking woman. And below her is her deceased husband, who is standing in a black shirt holding a chicken? Inexplicably, <laughs> there's just of all, look. If you're gonna, if I'm gonna be killed someday, at least find one decent photo of me in which I'm not holding livestock. <laughs> uh, surely they could have found a picture of this man that he is not holding fowl. <laughs> that just makes no sense whatsoever. If you're gonna, uh, like, come on, you're not being nice to the guy. But the other part about this. I think she's going to have an exceedingly difficult time not making this a first-degree murder charge. How do you not have it 
as premeditated. When you wrote the book, How to Kill Your Husband. Like, literally, you wrote, wrote the liter- book. Yeah, it's going to be hard for her to say, no, I never thought of this before. Okay, there's story number one. Story number two comes to us from New Haven, Connecticut, where a guy owned an eatery, he owned a restaurant along the main street, and he got tired with people who were walking their dogs along the main street, stopping and letting them pee on the flower pot that was right in front of his store, right in front of his restaurant. I guess it's not visually appealing for his clients, his customers, his eaters, his diners, to constantly be sitting there eating and watching a dog lift its leg and pee on the flower pot. So he posted a sign on the window, a joking sign, said, attention dog owners, this is a pay per pee flower pot. Pay inside or leave your address and we'll kindly return the favor. Just kind of, you know, nudge, nudge, nyuck, nyuck, nyuck. The city's city's public space enforcement officer showed up and gave him charges on two, breaking two city ordinances. He's now facing charges for being a public nuisance among other things, for putting up this sign. Somehow, the city of New Haven, Connecticut, needs to lighten up a little bit. Really? A little bit. That's story number two. Story number three, any man listening right now, you may want to plug your ears and go, la, 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 la. Um, the story is gross. Well, it's it's in China. A guy was swimming, and a stingray barbed a guy right there, right? There. Okay. So that's, that's a bad story that a guy comes out of the water. There's pictures of him sitting on the beach, stingray on the sand beside him. Oh, it was still there. Oh yeah. I still attached to him. The rescuers had to come and detach the barb from him. Yeah. You got, I don't need to go into any more details that. Okay. So that's the story. That's not so much the part of the story that I was wanting to mention in this one. The thing I'm mentioning, because this could, I suppose, theoretically happen to anyone, there were dozens of people standing around watching the rescue effort, filming the whole thing on their cell phones. Who decides that a poor guy has a stingray attached to his wiener and you have to videotape the extraction <laughs> procedure? Who who has that go through their mind? That's what I don't get. Poor man is now neutered. And you decided that you need this for your personal photo collection. What? Do you, where are you ever going to show this? Get it printed out, high glossy, high framed gl- and put above the couch. Come on. So anyway, there's my three stories. The woman who murdered her husband after writing about how to murder her husband. The restaurant <laughs> that said that you have to have your dogs pay to pee on the flower pot and then get charged by the city. And three, the folks who stand around a poor wailing guy with a stingray attached to his because it stung him and deciding that they're going to videotape the process of the rescuers extracting it. Which one is your story of the day? Holy moly. This is the toughest one. I think you have ever hit me with Scott. Um, I think I got, I got to go with, uh, how to murder your husband. (laughs) I want to see if she uh, if she says the chicken did it or something. <laughs> yeah, that's another one. Poor man. If you're gonna go, if you're gonna have your last photo on Earth and the last image of you, don't include a chicken. Surely there had to be another photo of him taken sometime in his life, even if it's as a child. Put the children's picture in. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Over the last number of years, my next guest has traveled to all or certainly nearly all of those parks. It is a huge amount of baseball. It is a huge amount of hot dogs. It is a huge amount of Cracker Jacks. I don't know if do people still eat Cracker Jacks. I don't know. Uh, but he has seen baseball from the great to the awful, from the sublime to the less than sublime. But he has seen it all. His name is Benjamin Hill. He's a writer for Major League Baseball's official website, MILB.com. Benjamin, thanks for doing this today. Hey, thanks for having me. I got to tell you, I am deeply envious of the chance to have done what you've done to go around and see all of these parks and to spend time there. I think this would have been the great road trips of all time. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. You know, it wasn't something I set out to do initially, um, but to make a long story short, one thing led to another. Uh, I've been writing for the for MILB.com, the minor league baseball site, uh, since 2005 and kind of developed a niche that I call the business and culture of minor league baseball and exploring America through minor league baseball. So there's 160 teams, um, technically 159 ballparks because there's two teams in Florida that share a ballpark. Um, But, you know, a lot of what I do is writing about the fan experience and kind of detailing how the teams operate and what makes each one unique. 
this thing starts, I guess, when, you, when you're going to be talking about minor league parks, how many years do we have to go back to really have the ballpark as the community center that, that was on a, on a summer night that this was, in a lot of places, the place where you would go and socialize and it was the focal point of the town? I mean, is that, do we have to go back a bunch of years or is that still the case? Well, I think that's definitely still the case, and that's one of the reasons that minor league baseball is successful. Um, you know, it's a truism of the industry of minor league baseball that you, you know, if you only market it to the purists, you'd be out of a job. So it's about making it fun for everybody, which is why you see the crazy promotions and the mascots and the food items and everything like that. It's to create a place that everyone can go to and, and yes, be that community gathering place and a place that the whole family can go to. And even if you don't like baseball, there's enough entertainment going on. So that's very much the name of the game with minor league baseball um, beyond the sport itself and um, you know, really a key to, to the success of the industry. It is definitely not intended to be miniature Major League Baseball. I mean, we are talking about an intentional difference between those two things. Yeah, absolutely. And I think at the core of it is just not taking yourself too seriously. Mm. You know, in the, ma- in the Major Leagues, it's about winning, and you're going to draw well if you're winning, and you're not going to draw well if you're not. In the minor leagues, you know, the players come and go. Everything is controlled by the parent club, by the Major League organization, in terms of promotions, demotions, who's on the roster, everything like that. So if you work in minor league baseball, if you're a general manager of a minor league team, you know, you have no control over the roster. You're not thinking about how to improve the bullpen. All you're doing is creating a consistent entertainment experience no matter what. And the truth of the matter is, is most fans don't really know what's going on on the field and don't really follow <laughs> the team on a day-to-day basis. It's, it's, it's absolutely true. And, you know, I've, I've talked to many, many people who work in minor league baseball, and one of the cliches they always resort to is, you know, when the fans leave the game, they might not know who won, but they know they had a good time. Well, I mean, that's really what it's about. Yeah, I mean, up here right now in Toronto Blue Jays country, everybody is very much aware of Vladimir Guerrero Jr., uh, and he's been in the minor leagues this year. He was in AA in New Hampshire, and then he went up to AAA in Buffalo. But if you're the AA team in New Hampshire, based on a, you really can't build your season, your marketing campaign, your sales around that guy, because literally he could be gone the next day without any warning. Yeah, and that's exactly it. I mean, once every year you're going to have some guys like Guerrero who really do move the needle in terms of attendance because they're such a talent. But for the most part, big prospects don't even draw the average fan that much anyway. And like you said, you know, you can't build a marketing campaign around that. You can't put up billboards. You can't put them on the, you know, on the program and everything because he literally might, might be gone in two months. That's why you see the mascot in place of uh, you know, star <laughs> players because you, you know the mascot's going to be there. You hope anyway. You hope unless something goes horribly, horribly wrong. Yeah, you never know, but uh, hopefully the mascot stays scandal-free and healthy. Uh, the, the thing about the minor league parks, too, though, is that there is the gamut. I said this off the top, but there are those that are, I'm guessing, almost palatial, that are just gorgeous and that are expensive and that are really something to see. And I'm assuming, I haven't obviously been to a 50th of what you've been to, but there are those at the other end that are pretty spartan as well. It's a, it's a huge difference across the country. Yeah, and that's what I love about it, and that's why I stay in this world. I've stayed in this world for so long. You know, when people hear I'm a minor league writer, they always say, like anything in the minor leagues, oh, when are you going to try to get to the majors? Um, But, you know, I like the minor leagues much better, and I think the average fan might find they like it a lot better. uh, Because when you, you plan a road trip around minor league baseball, you can include so much diversity in the landscape. You can see AAA baseball in cities like Nashville and Las Vegas and Memphis and things like that. But you can also go to the Appalachian League and see a game in Bristol, Virginia at a, at a ballpark that's barely more than an American Legion field where it's entirely volunteer run. And you can see all that under the same umbrella of minor league baseball. And uh, in certain areas of the country, you can just kind of whiplash back and forth. You can see the AAA Durham Bulls one day and see the uh, rookie level you know, Burlington Royals the next and uh, really run that gamut in a short amount of time and uh, you know, really get two very different environments. But Benjamin, is that changing at all? Because it seems like everything in sports is becoming more professional, more expensive, more glossy, more controlled. Is that affecting and dribbling right down into the minor leagues? Well, certainly, um, you know, the quality of the facilities is is very important. And uh, since they are used to develop major league players, um, there's a lot of emphasis on, you know, having newer ballparks. And, and that's also good for the fans as well from a fan perspective. So you're always going to be see a drive for newer, and teams argue, you know, talking about their 
having the best video board and the best 360 degree concourse. So um, there's always going to be a move towards uh, the glossy and the slick to the amount that you can. Um, but again, at the end of the day, you can't go too far with that in minor league baseball because it's predicated on being affordable. And so that's not really going to change because that's how they get people through the gates. Yeah. You don't want to gloss out all the charm of the thing. I mean, there, there is some charm in rough edges. I, I very much think so. And, uh, you see a lot, if you spend a lot of time in the minor leagues, you see a lot of weird things. And, uh, <laughs> I think that's a lot more fun. You know, it, it's a lot less sanitized than Major League Baseball. Well, let's go there for a minute because that's one of the things a lot of people know about. One of the, the things that major, or sorry, that minor league teams do exceptionally well, as you've pointed out, out of necessity is promotions, which uh, I guess when I say necessity, you're, there's an awful lot of entertainment options. Even people in the furthest reaches of rural United States now with Netflix and everything else, uh, they have to do these promotions to try and get people to be interested. Yeah, I mean, that goes back to what I was saying earlier about uh, how the product in the field is kind of secondary and how you have to create fun things that are, um, you know, that'll just draw the casual fan in. Uh, so it's a very unserious world, and sometimes people get a little upset that, you know, the theme jerseys can be just completely over the top. You know, there's been a big trend in recent years of, you know, teams rebranding as uh, regional food items. So you have the Albuquerque green chili cheeseburgers playing the <laughs> Omaha runs. Um, you know, things like that. And it goes it goes deep mm. in terms of, uh, you know, how, how weird these things can get. And it's a very unserious world. And, you know, professional guys have to wear those jerseys, but I think you just have to take it with a grain of salt because that's what it's about. Yes, I loved the Who Wants to Be a Turkish Millionaire Night. That was a good one that I saw for one of the promotions. I still have no idea what that actually means. Uh, one of my other favorites was Political Correctness Night where they didn't put the score up on the board so nobody's feelings were hurt and you weren't actually called out because, you know, nobody actually doesn't get their turn and on and on. It was very, very funny. Um, but while the idea is, oh, and Seinfeld night, of course, uh, always a good yeah, one. A lot, a lot of those. A lot of those. While the ideas are hilarious and full marks to the people, because again, I'm small staffs that are working on this, small marketing staffs that are doing this. While the ideas are terrific, how well do they execute these oftentimes? Well, I think that's a big part of it, and it depends on the promotion. I mean, most of them are executed really well because. If you're going to say if you're saying you're going to do something, you better do it well because once fans are there, they really want to immerse themselves in it. And so, a good theme night, you know, we'll have the theme jerseys. It'll have between inning contests modeled around it. It'll have um, you know ballpark decorations. It'll be a full-on thing. But then you also have teams just kind of sometimes going for what's more uh, just something that'll get them attention more on the internet than than actual execution at the ballpark. I mean, we saw that a lot this year with different teams doing millennial nights and kind of um, making fun of millennials through a theme night. And I don't think there's you know, too much you have to do at the ballpark for that, but when you get that on Twitter, people get mad, and you, you, know, you get a lot of attention. But for the most part, it really is about having an idea and blowing it out to the extent you can, you know, like you said, with the realization that uh, you know, these are often you know, teams with not a lot of staff and not a whole lot of money. Yeah, my, my personal favorite just by name this year was the Axe Women Loggers of Maine night. Again, I have no idea what that even means, uh, but it just sounds great. My least favorite, I think, would have been the bring your cat to the ballpark night because that just seems like it's got every possible recipe for disaster. Uh, not just the cats running around in the field, but everybody with an allergy just had a horrible time at the park that night. But again, it, it just it talks to some of the, the hilarity. I, I would actually love, Benjamin, to be in a couple of those meetings when they're sitting at the beginning of the year coming up with ideas. I think that would be a hoot. Yeah, and there's a lot of brainstorming, and, and in fact, you know, now that the minor league season is over, uh, most of the leagues end in Labor Day, uh, end on Labor Day, and we have um, you know the playoffs going now. But at the end of the month, there is um, the minor league baseball promotional seminar, and that's an annual event, and that's what it's all about. It's uh, it's saying, okay, the season's over, now let's all meet and brainstorm things for next year. And especially you know in affiliated minor league baseball, every team is in its own territory, so they don't compete with one another. So there's very much an idea throughout these 160 teams of essentially stealing other teams' ideas. And this seminar coming up in a few weeks is kind of predicated on that notion of just saying, hey, tell, tell us what worked for your team, and then maybe it can work somewhere else. And that's why you see some of these promotional ideas you know, kind of spread like wildfire through the years, things like Star Wars nights or Bark at the Park with the dogs. Uh, not so much Purr at the Park with the cats, but, <laughs> um, but that sort of thing. I... I I would love to think that major league, the major league teams could 
come back to this a little bit. I mean, obviously they're never going to go minor league. That's not the point, but there is something just, uh, it's, it's a really stupid word, I guess, but really charming almost about when minor league teams do this. I w- I, there could be a lot of fun in a major league park if you could have this kind of fun and, as you say, not take yourself quite as seriously for a few minutes in a game. Yeah, and you do see a kind of trickle-up effect um, with some of the most successful minor league promotions working their way to the majors. Uh, but for the most part, I think there is a lot of hesitancy on the part of major league clubs to uh, to not be too goofy because then you risk alienating the fan base who you know think it kind of distracts from the purity of the game or is in essence minor league and uh, yeah. you know they they don't want to see minor league at their major league stadium. Yeah, their players graduated from that. They probably don't want to be uh, doing a, like a cow milking at second base during the seventh inning stretch or something. I, I I I'm thinking you you might have a hard time finding a major leaguer signing up for that particular one. You probably would, but you see, you do see it all the time in the minors and the players getting involved, you know, squeezing those udders. <laughs> how, how did you, do you remember your first minor league game? Um, well, as a fan, I mean, I grew up in Pennsylvania. As a fan, it was the Scranton-Wilkes-Barre uh, Red Barons, who are now the Rail Riders uh, in, uh, in kind of northeastern Pennsylvania, and that made it a huge impression on, on me just because I was a Phillies fan, and they were a Phillies affiliate. Um, but the first game I actually ever went to once I started writing for MILB.com, um, you know, still part-time, didn't know what I was doing, and another team in Pennsylvania, the Altoona Curve, uh, had a promotion called Awful Night, and the premise of it was just to make things intentionally awful, to have misspellings <laughs> on the scoreboard, uh, they gave away sporks, they had a shirtless man uh, with a cape singing the seventh inning stretch in falsetto, and... You know, I don't know how many people that got in the ballpark, but it just spokes to the, you know, speaks to the spirit of the minor leagues. And um, that was the first one I kind of had to go see for myself, and it's kind of uh, helped kickstart the evolution into, you know, what I'm doing now. Oh, I, w- I want to have one of those around here for, you know, that that is actually hilarious. Because, again, I love the, the fact that, two things, I love the fact that a team came up with that, and then I love that somebody in the, upper levels of the team. And again, not huge staffs and not all huge budgets, but somebody who owns the team or runs the team said, yeah, okay, go ahead. That sounds funny. Cause that there's so many places they would say, no, we're not doing that. Are you out of your mind? Yeah. And I think that's why people, even though the hours are long and the pay isn't great, I think that's why a lot of people try to stay in minor league baseball as long as they can. Cause it's very hard to reconcile the things you can get away with in minor league baseball with pretty much any other professional corporate atmosphere. I mean, the team that did Awful Night, their GM for a while, he got his gallbladder removed and then tried to give it away at the ballpark. And then uh, <laughs> I think there were some health issues with that. So they just gave away pictures so. of the gallbladder instead. Yeah. <laughs> that would that would definitely be a first, is give away an, or have an or draw for an organ night. At the ballpark, yeah, you don't want to do that during the uh, during the eating portion of the game either. No, no crossover. Uh, are there any common denominators? Like when you go from park to park, everyone is different. I understand everyone has different ideas, and they look to. But are there things that are the uh, the same or similar or almost the same at every one of these parks? Well, you know, like I said, there is so much diversity in the in the ballparks that it can be hard to compare, especially AAA to rookie level. And as much as, you know, the industry and, and what we've been hitting on in this conversation is kind of away from the sport, and that's how they have to operate it, um, you know, what really does unite it is baseball. And um, as much as to be successful, you need to do promotions that, uh, you know, attract other people's attention, it's still baseball at the heart of it. And that's what I think is so great. You know, I'm a baseball fan growing up, and even though I write about all the stuff surrounding a game, and I go to a game, and I barely get to see what's happening because I'm involved in everything else, I think it's pretty great that all this entertainment all over the country in cities big and small is still united around baseball, you know, the national pastime. And is it working? I mean, is attendance holding in these places? Because we, we hear a lot about baseball and about, you know, are people still interested in watching baseball? And certainly TV numbers are not bad and online numbers are not bad. Is minor league baseball holding its own? I mean, minor league baseball is, um, you know, for these reasons that that they put so much of of an emphasis on things um, away from the game. And uh, it is unfortunate. Like, for instance, the playoffs are going on now in minor league baseball. And by that point, you know, it's football season, school started, the weather's getting colder, and the teams don't draw well at all for the playoffs. And so that kind of speaks to the fact that the hardcore fan element is not too strong in minor league baseball. But the just place to go and have fun no matter who you are element is very strong. 
which is why on on the whole there has um you know attendance has held steady and even risen uh in minor league baseball i think because it's affordable and uh there's something for everybody your job may not be traveling with the New York Yankees, i got to tell you, but I'm, I am envious. It's, it sounds like it's an awful lot of fun to do what you do and to travel around and to see all these places. Uh, Benjamin Hill, writer for Minor League Baseball's official website, MILB.com. You can look him up. Uh, Benjamin, thanks for the time today. really appreciate it. Uh, thank you. It was great talking to you. Uh, let me tell you, Will, I'm going to bring Will in for a second here. You know, when Benjamin was talking about the promotion that happens in minor leagues all over the place with a cow milking competition, which is an old standby, I mean, it is a it is a go to promote. If if you if you need an easy promotion you, in the seventh inning stretch, you march two cows on the field, one for some fan, one for a player, and you and you you know this is this happens in so many minor league parks. But anyway, the reason I bring this up is because this was done at a hockey game one time, a minor oh. pro hockey game. I was told this story by a Hamilton guy who used to play in the minor leagues, who was playing in a game where they decided to have a cow milking contest <laughs> at center ice between the first and second or second and third periods. And so they laid all this carpet down so, okay, they, could, good. <laughs> so they could bring Bessie and Billy, whatever the two cows' names are, out to center ice, and a player in full uniform and some other person had a cow milking competition. <laughs> so far, so good. To this point... The promotion is going pretty much as expected. But here's where things go terribly, terribly wrong. Because according to this player, who will remain nameless right now, but he is a Hamilton guy. According to this player, as they were leading the cows back off the ice, one of the cows stepped off the carpet and ended up in a bad way breaking a leg. Which was very unfortunate, but more unfortunate... Cows with broken legs, there's not a lot of health benefits for them. So (laughs) according to the player, and I laugh only because of the insanity of the circumstance. Yes, this is starting to sound like National Lampoon. (laughs) They brought people out to stand around the cow with blankets while a police officer put the cow out of its misery. (laughs) At which point they then attached it by chain to the Zamboni and dragged it (laughs) off the ice, leaving a trail of blood behind. And I'm thinking, you know, of all the possible promotions, how to make, the kids would have been terrified and weeping now because Bessie has just been exterminated at center ice. And you're dragging this poor cow off the, this cow carcass off the ice. It started out with a very friendly milking competition and ended up with a death on the ice. And I'm thinking this, see the, the promotional ideas, there's always a risk. There's always a risk. This guy told me lots of other promotions that also went sour, but that one always stood out to me as the cow that had to be put down on the (laughs) ice and then dragged off by the Zamboni. Uh, I'm hoping that baseball has never had to do that, but then I'm hoping no baseball game has ever been played in ice either. So, <laughs> Thanks for sharing that story, Scott. It, it, was a be- it was a beautiful story that I thought I would share based on the promotions of minor league franchises. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.